This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I am joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. But wait! Wait! One more! But wait, wait. We have a special guest, and that is Jason Moser. Yes, Yay, ma'am. Hey, Jason. Jason joins us to talk about the attributes of a never-sell stock, the stocks you want to have and hold forever and ever. We'll even get some never-sell stock ideas from a few analysts, and we're also going to answer your question about adjusting money priorities when life gets unpredictable. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. It's time for Answers Answers! And today's question comes from Abby in Washington, D.C. She writes, I'll soon be headed to business school, and my question is about this new phase in my life. Do you have advice for someone whose finances are about to turn upside down? I'm going to transition from saving earnings to spending savings, and my new world will be very unpredictable and rife with situations where I have to assess whether a trip, special event, etc. is worth the extra cost. Any advice for how to set and keep my new financial priorities? She also writes, P.S. Allison, all clogs, all day here. Rock on. <laughs> Rock on, Abby. Rock on, I agree. Abby. Well, Abby's situation exemplifies an important financial planning concept, and that is, life, transa- life transitions are financial disruptions. Whether it's going to school like she is, or graduating from school, or sending your kids off to school, marriage, divorce, birth, death, job change, moving, retiring, these will have some sort of impact on just about every aspect of your financial planning. So, from your taxes, insurance, income, expenses. And you can understand a situation like Abby, where she's a little freaked out, maybe, and saying, how is all this going to affect my future? How is it going to affect my savings? And there's really only one way to handle that, and that is to come up with basically a three to five year financial forecast for yourself. And I know that doesn't sound very exciting, but I can tell you, I recently did it myself because I am also in the middle of a life transition. I'm moving uh, at a point when I have two teenagers who will be going to college in a couple of years, might have to get them a car, the youngest kid needs braces. So I figured the only way to really understand how all these things move together is to basically create a spreadsheet and map out the next three to five years. What you'll find, Abby, and anyone else who's go through any major transition, is you'll find different ways that your expenses will change. For her, if she's working now, but then becomes a student, her taxes are going to go down significantly. She's probably leaving her employer's health plan and doing probably the school's health plan. How does that change your expenses? Um, for us, when I was analyzing how my kids going to college will affect our expenses, Obviously, we'll have the expense of college, but I also will have the expense of saving for college going away. I also expect that I will not be spending as much on food and utilities once the kids move out. Moochers. That's right. Um, but besides just a, an average budget, you have a sort of a net worth component to this. For us, it was how much we save for college. For Abby, it'll be just her savings. And it'll be helpful for her. So if like six months from now she says, I want to take this trip and it's going to cost me $1,000, she can put that into her spreadsheet and say, okay. If I do that, how does that affect my finances three to five years down the road? Am I okay or not? Um, so I think that's really the best way for her to handle the situation, and for anyone evaluating any major major transition, especially people who are about to retire. But a job change, moving to a new location, just about every aspect of your finances will be affected. It probably helps to look five years in the future, like you said, because also business school will be passed. Like right. this, this is a this is a temporary painful time for her. But in five years, she'll be through it, and she'll be hopefully making bank at some 
awesome consulting firm in DC. Right, exactly. <laughs> so. And I, I recently wrote an article about this, and one of the components that I think is important is get expert input. So for her situation, she, she should have. She came to you, by the way. Sorry, you're the expert <laughs> input on this. <laughs> I'm so sorry, sorry Abby. Abby. Uh, but, other but experts. Related to what? Recommending <laughs> finding other experts. Right, but related to what you said about Abby is. She should have a realistic idea of how much she's going to make when she comes out and be able to figure out, okay, so if I do this over the next two, three years, how does that look three to five years down the road? For me, basically, I sat down with our CFO, Olin Douglas, former guest on our show, and said, okay, where's the company going? What's a reasonable expectation for my income over the next three to five years? And then I put that into my five-year forecast to say, okay, given all that, I think we'll be okay with this size of a mortgage. And that our kids probably go to school. Probably. They're going to go to school. They're going to go to school. Are you kidding? Yeah. All right, Abby, I hope you find that helpful. And um, since you are in the DC area, obviously, if you ever find yourself in Old Town, feel free to, to swing on by. Just give us a warning first so we can roll out the red carpet. We are gathered here today to join this investor and this stock forever in investing matrimony. Dun, 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 dun. Is that the wedding theme? Yeah, there's a lot of wedding, different wedding that is themes. A wedding you could have gone, you could have oh. gone Pachelbel's Canon or yeah. whatever. The point is, is that here at the Motley Fool, we are long-term investors, and so the idea of investing in a stock for three, five, ten years. That ain't no thing. But investing in a stock forever, a stock that you will have and hold forever. That Is there sounds such like a such thing? a long time. It does sound you know. like such a long time. Um, so Jason Moser joins us here today. He is an analyst on Motley Fool's Million Dollar Portfolio Service. C. Uh, he also is a frequent guest on Market Foolery. Uh, in fact. Anyone who out there who listens to the Howard Stern show would have heard Jason Moser <laughs> on the yeah. Howard Stern show. That was a nice little uh, that was a nice nugget from the week. Yeah, so well, we owe that to one of our market foolery listeners who actually uh, pinged them over at the Stern show from something on Monday. It's just kind of funny how that all worked out. Yeah, it is funny. Kind of so, kind of a big deal. Jason Moser joins <laughs> us today. Uh, he goes from Howard Stern that. to our show. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for joining us. All right, so never sell stocks. Let's let's talk about that first because in general I feel like we invest in stocks so that someday we can cash them out for a ton of moolah. <laughs> so why would we have stocks uh, that we want to hold essentially for forever? Well, I'm Are glad, we really talking about forever? I'm glad that you asked that because I've had many people ask me that very question. It's one thing to consider yourself a, a buy to hold investor. I mean, we want to look uh, at the long run versus the short run. That's kind of our edge as investors. But yeah, you're right. At some point, you want to actually realize the fruits of your labor and cash in those gains, right? I mean, it all basically depends on why you're investing in the first place. So many of us are investing in order to ensure our financial independence in our later years. Perhaps some people are investing because they want to leave their kids something after they pass on. And that's fine too. It's all a matter of understanding ultimately what your goals are. And then once you can sort of identify your goals, then you can identify if you really need to plan on holding this stock forever or if forever really is just kind of like a 10 to 20 year time horizon. Because honestly, that can make a big difference. And honestly, how many people get married and they're like, I'm going to love you forever. And then they get divorced and like, so, you know, whatever. There's a wiggle room. But I think it's also worth noting that we three here are all 
married, not to each other, of course, but I, I think we're still all on our first <laughs> so for lucky, quite some time, and uh, it seems to be working out for some people in this world. <laughs> we're all on our firsts. Yes, that's true. Uh, no, I, I, I just I do think that's an important thing to note. And so when we say never sell stocks, I think that's a little bit of hyperbole yeah. in that we really do focus on longer term investing than most do. So maybe we're more talking about a time horizon of 10, 20 years. Sure. I oh, mean, no. you look at 10 and 20 years, and I think that's a pretty neat way to, to look at things. I mean, I'm 43 years old today. There are companies in my portfolio, my personal portfolio, that I would love to still own when I'm 63. All right. Well, let's get into it. So, we've got a few different categories that we're going to look at when it comes to determining whether that stock is a never sell stock. And the first uh, sort of aspect we're going to look at is company culture. Sure. Culture. Well, culture. Culture's a big deal. I mean, I, I think we talk a lot about culture here at The Motley Fool because we're very proud of our culture. And speaking as someone who's worked at a number of companies before where the culture maybe wasn't as strong, or well, actually, definitely wasn't as strong, uh, culture can make a big difference. I mean, it doesn't make or break an investment, but when it, whenever we find a company that has a strong culture, uh, that is a quality that, that uh, we want to dig further in and understand more about the company and, and, and what it does and, and why it may be a good investment. Uh, Understanding that when the business wins, it's not just the business at hand, it's all stakeholders involved, customers, employees, the world. Uh, a lot of different companies out there that probably fit in this uh, sort of realm. I think you look at Under Armour, for example, from a perspective of an ownership structure that's vested and aligned with the interest of shareholders. Well, Kevin Plank, the founder and CEO of the company, owns the majority voting rights of that company. And they recently undertook a stock split to ensure that he would keep that power for many years to come. Now, I know some people uh, are a little bit critical of moves like that. We've seen other companies like Google, for example, have done the same thing, or Alphabet, I guess now it is today. Uh, the flip side of that coin is, he's got a pretty good track record here. The company's now 20 years old, and it is uh, doing quite well, and investors in Under Armour have won all along the way. All right, so when we're looking at company culture, we're looking at uh, happy, engaged employees. We're also looking at at upper level ownership stake in the company, it sounds like sure, and and very driven leadership. I mean, Kevin Plank is known for having mottos all over uh, their their headquarters: uh, humble and hungry. You know, they they continually want to get better, but also uh, don't get too too big ahead in the process. Um, but I, I think that Under Armour, generally speaking, has a pretty strong culture that we've we've uh, noted here for years at the Fool, and it's worked out to be a wonderful investment thus far. All right, let's talk about strategy next, because sometimes I feel like companies. Um, maybe they don't have like a great strategy, but they were kind of like the right business at the right time. But maybe maybe they did have a good strategy. I don't know. How do you even judge strategy? Well, I think uh, you talk about right business at the right time in this recent. Um, Pokemon Go thing has everybody's been wondering like is Nintendo the next big thing? Well, Nintendo's been a public company for a while now and not a very compelling investment, and it just uh, just goes to show that one little flash in the pan type of game isn't going to necessarily change change the game, right? Um, but I think with strategy, you know, we look for companies with pricing power. Um, what is pricing? Offer. What is pricing power? Pricing power is basically just the ability to raise prices um, on your product or service without realizing any drop off in traffic, so to speak. So, Starbucks, I think here is just the shining example of a company that they sell an addictive product in coffee, and addictive in the sense that people don't really think it's all that. It's not like cigarettes, right? I mean, cigarettes obviously. We've we know they're very bad for you. Coffee, on the other hand, it's it's been determined in moderate amounts is actually pretty good for you. Um, 
I'm sure that probably is debatable. So we'll get an email or two telling me I'm wrong, and that's fine. <laughs> uh, but but regardless, people go into Starbucks day after day after day. They have Starbucks in their house every day. Coffee is just a ritual here in the states, particularly. But it's not just coffee; it's tea. They're getting their name in the juice game. They've got some food ideas, and so Starbucks has done a very good job of of building a business based on repeat purchases, based on customer loyalty, and and really becoming sort of a a ritual for many people and what that does afford them is pricing power. You will see every once in a while they're able to raise prices on a cup of coffee. Maybe it's 5 cents, maybe it's 10 cents. It doesn't seem like much to you as the consumer. Yeah. But when you multiply that times hundreds of thousands of beverages that they sling on a daily basis, it really adds up. And and they have the ability to do that. They've demonstrated that ability over the over the years. Yeah. Which is why it's worked out to be such a good investment. The other day, Ron and I, my husband and I went to get a cup of coffee. And I bought a cup of coffee, and then I realized not until after I bought that cup of coffee that I paid like three dollars and fifty cents for a cup of coffee. I was like, "What? What just happened? How did that? What do I? Do? I guess I better really enjoy this cup of coffee." But I guess your point about they 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 did it. They raised the prices on me, and I just didn't even think about it. I the just other, bought it. The other interesting thing in today's society, because we're using mobile so much more in in paying for things. A lot of times, there's never any cash that changes hands, and so when there's no cash that changes hands, you're less apt to sit there and actually note what you're paying. You'll notice it afterwards, like you did, yeah. <laughs> but you're not going to really tend to look at it up front because yeah, it's just pull boom, out your phone, boom, goes right through done. your phone, done. And so they've done a wonderful job of building up that uh, that mobile presence as well. That's really really paid off. All right, so strategy: you want to look for pricing power. You want to look for a business model that based on repeat purchases, recurring revenue, and that they're serving a big, growing, dynamic market. Does that no sound question. about right? Mm-hmm. All right, let's move on to the financials. Okay, here we go. Let's talk about financials. What are you looking for? When it comes to the balance sheet, income statements, how much do I have to dig into this? What you want to make sure you have is a business that is not going to be beholden to the capital markets in order to do its thing for long, sustained periods of time. But what you mean? What do you mean by the capital markets? Having to take out debt by issuing oh, okay. bonds, have to issue more shares to dilute shareholders in the process. It's it's nice when you see a business that generates a lot of cash via its operations. I think Chipotle is a very good example of a business like this. Uh, it, it is a business. We know that Chipotle they own all of their restaurants. They don't franchise them. They have somewhere around two thousand today. But they, the restaurants themselves don't cost a whole heck of a lot to open up and get started. Somewhere in the neighborhood of eight hundred thousand dollars or so. They re, they realize the return on that investment, which is basically just getting back to break even via the sales from the restaurant in in somewhere in the neighborhood of a year to to a year and a half, depending on where they open it. Now from there, those restaurants just become virtual cash machines, and they're able to take that cash and redeploy it back into the business to open up more stores and grow their presence. All along the while, they're able to build up their balance sheet with more. More cash. They don't have to take out debt. So all the while here, they're able to self fund growth uh, at a deliberate pace according according to their timeline. Uh, they never put themselves in in a financial pickle, so to speak. And in times like these, where we know they're having a big uh, sort of they're just recovering from this big E. coli crisis, and this has been a big crisis, right? I think it's the biggest yeah. test of their of their. 22 or 23 year history, uh, they have been very good about executing share buybacks at what they feel like are very depressed levels of their of their of their shares today. So their share account's not going up; it's actually coming down, uh, and they're still recovering from this from this crisis. Okay, so I think 
assuming we don't see any more headlines and, and they've got their food safety standards in order, I think that 2016 is going to serve as a wonderful year to actually build or add to your position in Chipotle. Because down the road, again, we talk about repeat purchases and businesses that have demonstrated pricing power throughout the years. Chipotle is another one that has done that, and it's done it in a, in a fiscally fit way, so to speak. I'm a pretty novice investor, so it's kind of funny to me the idea that, well, you should invest in companies that are profitable. Sure. <laughs> it's kind of like, oh, yeah, that that makes sense. I guess there are people out there who invest in companies that are not profitable. Well, yeah. it, it, I mean, in today's tech world, that yeah. is very common. Yeah. You see a lot of businesses that get started, they go public early on in their lives, and they have to invest so much up front to build out the tech in that business that they aren't profitable for, for some period of time. And that's where you really want to kind of take a look beyond the financials and understand exactly what is the power of this business. Is there a network effect or something, a utility where we can see this business being relevant 10 years from now? And if that's the case, then you can kind of look past the financials at, at potential future earnings power and, and determine when, if they, if they will become profitable. All right, next one we want to talk about is the idea of safety. Sure. What is what does safety mean when we're looking at a company as a potential never sell stock? Yeah, safety. I think a lot of times we equate that with risk, and I think when people think of risk, they're trying to figure out what is the chance that they're actually going to lose the money that they invest. And so when we talk about risk, we're talking about essentially the permanent impairment of the capital that you're investing. If I'm going to invest one thousand dollars in this business today, what are the chances that I will lose all of my money? Um, and that really kind of helps dictate the level of risk in the investment. I think when you look at businesses today, safety, you want to take a lot of these sort of aspects that we talked about, culture, financial, strategy, and they all kind of roll into the safety factor there, right? I mean, we want to know that this company has good financials and a good business model and a good strategy and a good culture. And they sort of all add add up there, uh, along with things like knowing that they're not making all of their money from one particular item or from one particular party. Uh, so, I, I mean, I think you look at something like Facebook, for example, and I think that Facebook is a great example of a business today that's so big and has such a big reach, such a tremendous network from not only just Facebook, but from WhatsApp, from Messenger, from Instagram, and from whatever else they may decide to acquire. And let's face it, they will have the power to basically do whatever they want because of their size. We know that's going to be a pretty safe investment, uh, at least for the foreseeable future. And again, just because it's safe today doesn't mean it's going to be safe a year from now or five years from now. You always want to reassess those types of things. But I think that a lot of these things that we talk about feed into that safety assessment, and it's certainly one you want to give due attention. All right. And the final thing we're going to talk about is valuation. Sure. Everybody now, go to sleep. <laughs> just a little bit. I'm just gonna. I'm you know. I'm just gonna close my eyes. I'm not actually gonna be asleep. I'm still listening. I think a lot of people do actually too now when it comes to valuation because it seems like it's kind of the boring part of investing and it requires some math and it's, maybe it's not the most fun in the world. I don't know. I, I get a kick out of it, but I, I think that. Um, you know, there are two schools of thought, I guess. I mean, some people who just investors that don't really focus too much on valuation, and then there are other investors that focus maybe too much on it. Um, I, I kind of like to find the middle there. I think that valuation, I think price always matters ultimately. Um, oh, sorry. I should take a step back. Valuation, of course, being the the value that the market believes the company sure, is worth, yeah. as opposed to how much the company itself right. is and, and so worth on the balance yeah, sheet. Yeah, we look at we look at the stock today, and it's selling for you know however many dollars, and there's a price to earnings ratio that's that's uh, tacked on there that tells us basically 
a multiple. It gives us an idea of how expensive or how cheap the stock is today. And there are many, many ways to assess valuation. It's not just a PE ratio. You can build out discounted cash flow models. You can build out simple earnings models. You can look at multiples, compare them over time. Um, but again, I think there are quant- quantifiable aspects when it comes to valuation that are very easy to figure out when we look at a business like Under Armour or Starbucks. But there are qualitative factors that come into evaluation that are less easy to to put a number around. We talk about the quality of the business, the quality of leadership, the quality of the competitive position that it has. And Amazon, I think, is a great example there of one that historically has been super polarizing, and that everybody who's who's on the bearish side is bearish basically because they think the stock is too expensive. And they've been saying that every every step of the way, and they've been proven wrong, obviously, every step of the way. Uh, because I think there are a lot of qualitative factors that that go into that business that that the numbers don't quite bear out. I think they built out a tremendous network there. Yeah, of, I mean, how do you put um, a price on the CEO Bezos? Like, well, how do you put a value on on him and his strong leadership and his vision? Yeah, and that's that's a really really great point there. I mean, he has this mentality every day that he wakes up and he feels threatened. He feels threatened by his competition. He feels like he's he's threatened by disruption every single day, and that's the way he approaches that business. That's why he's always relentlessly trying something new, building out that business to where now, I mean, you can see between the retail operations that they developed, between the Amazon Web Services operations that they've developed, if we just eliminate the math, for example, here, and just say if you closed Amazon's doors tomorrow, I mean, the world would basically stop turning. I mean, <laughs> Netflix would stop working. Netflix would stop working, and I and I think that really can can give people a better idea of how important Amazon is today. It's not because wait, why would Netflix stop working? Because Amazon, Netflix runs off of Amazon Web Services. Oh, yeah. really? Oh, and, wow. so, and the world runs on Netflix. Right. And therefore, the world runs on Netflix, if therefore, Amazon went away, you know, everybody would, would <laughs> oh. have a conniption fit at once. But oh, I mean, man. I think that's just one example of. Um, uh, of what they've done, I mean, I think that they've really helped define this new e-commerce age, and there's still plenty of opportunity out there. And he basically sees it as kind of like the Wild West, a big land grab, which is why he's out there doing it. So I think with valuation, bottom line is if you feel like you have a stock that you really like, a business that chimes in on everything that you're looking for, yet seems like it's too expensive. The way I like to look at that is I like to go ahead and consider taking a small position. Because if it's a business I want to own and valuation is the only thing stopping me, there's nothing that says I can't sort of build up a position in that company. I could buy a little bit now, follow it, and then opportunistically add when I feel like the valuation presents opportunities. And so I think there's one way to look at valuation and to sort of not let it stifle you from ever getting in on really some of the best stories we've seen here in the Motley Pool. All right. So when it comes to valuation, look at the quantitative as well as the qualitative. Yes. And if it still seems a bit too pricey, a little bit at a time. I think that's a safe way. To, on in. Safe way to do it. Awesome. All right, Jason. That covers it for what we like to look for in a never sell stock. Thank you, Jason. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Before we go, let's get some more ideas for some never sell stocks. I asked a few analysts at the Motley Fool and also a few portfolio managers down with Motley Fool Asset Management also a sister company of The Motley Fool. Uh, And here's what they had to say. My name is Bill Mann. I'm the Chief Investing Officer for Motley Fool Asset Management. And a stock that we have held since the day my now 16-year-old daughter was born is Costco. And it is a company that has, over time, been been expensive, been cheap, visited a bunch of different prices. But it's one that, uh, that I really personally have no interest in selling, simply because 
they have one of the best management teams, the best cultures that I've ever seen in, in, in a retailer. They have lots of room for, for growth, and I really just can't see them ever being pushed off of their, off of their pedestal. I'm David Meyer, Portfolio Manager at uh, Molly Fool Asset Management, and I think my never sell stock would be Google, or known today as Alphabet. Um, but this is a company that is really... It, it led the digital data revolution, and it continues to lead it. I think uh, with its, given its assets, given its management team, um, and a relatively attractive stock price, I would be very, very, very hard-pressed to sell this one ever. My name is Nate Weissar. I'm a portfolio manager at Motley Fool Asset Management, and there really isn't a hold forever stock in my mind. There's always a price for something, and if someone's being generous enough, I'm happy to let it go. Hi, I'm Alice Lomax. I, I'm an analyst for Motley Fool One, and my never sell stock is Starbucks. It has been a stock that I've held through thick and thin. I had it, I already held it during the financial crisis. I kept on holding it. It has done great for me, and I feel like Howard Schultz is the type of leader who will never let me down over the long term. Hi, I'm Buck Hartzell, Director of Investor Operations here at the Motley Fool, and my stock, although I would never say I will never sell a stock. There are a lot of stocks that I intend to never sell and hope to never sell, and Markel is one of those out of Richmond, Virginia, a mini Berkshire-esque type of company, great insurance company, own a lot of companies that are unrelated to insurance, there's going to be a lot more of those with a great management team that will be around 25 or 30 years. Thanks to Bill Mann, Dave Meyer, Nate Weishar, Alice Lomax, and Buck Hartzell for their never sell stock ideas. Disclaimer time! As always, The Motley Fool and our analysts may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks we just talked about. Don't buy and sell stocks based solely on what you hear on the show. That'll do it for today's show. Our email is answers at fool.com. I don't have anything else to say. Bro, you were pretty quiet this episode. Everything okay? Yeah, everything's okay. I just, Jason is so wise and smart, there's no reason for me to jump in and distract him. Just let him keep on going. Moser train just keeps on going down the tracks. That's right. Woo woo! The show is edited eternally by Rick Engdahl. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Mm-hmm.